Welcome to Support for Survivors, a podcast for survivors of sexual abuse. Each person's journey is unique. Our goal is to connect survivors to resources along the way on their path to healing. Our host, Shaughnessy Terrell, is a member of Cohen and Malad's sexual abuse litigation team and a former deputy prosecuting attorney who has tried hundreds of cases against sexual predators. We are here to help survivors get access to justice. Join us on this journey. Here is Support for Survivors. Hello, everyone. This is your host, Shaughnessy Terrell. Welcome to Support for Survivors. Today, I am so happy to welcome my friend and colleague, Michelle Correo, to the show. Michelle is a keynote speaker and compassionate advocate for victims of violent crimes. For 18 years, Michelle served at Prevail, a victim awareness and support program where she led the charge to create Central Indiana's first sexual assault response team, or SART, focused on victim-centered, trauma-informed care. Michelle is a recipient of the Special Courage Award presented to her by the United States Attorney General in 2010 and became the first ever recipient of the Distinguished Hoosier Award presented by the Indiana Attorney General. Through Michelle's current role as Executive Director at the O'Connor House in Carmel, Indiana, she leads programs that provide women who are single, pregnant, and homeless with safe housing and opportunities to improve life for themselves and their children. Michelle speaks to audiences of influencers, first responders, medical professionals, military and law enforcement personnel, faith communities, and a broad scope of conferences and events aimed at creating stronger, safer communities. Welcome to the podcast, Michelle. Thank you so much. It's great to be with you, Shaughnessy. Thanks for the opportunity. Of course. It's so good to see you. I'm really, really happy. I We met, I mean, gosh, I think it's been about like four years now. Um, we spoke together, together. Well, together, but kind of like before and after one another a few years back. And we barely even met each other, I think, before we went down. Right. Like, Right. And, um, we had a great time. And, you know, I, I will never forget. I was still, you know, relatively new to the speaking circuit, at least on that level. And um, I got to listen to you. And then I was like, well, crap, I don't want to speak now. I'm like, I want to listen to Michelle all day. I was just like, I don't want to get up there and do that. Um, you're just a very gifted speaker and your story is, you know, so compelling. And then, you know, you do have the best shoes of anyone I know. So <laughs> I love I do love shoes. okay let's just uh, launch into it here um let's talk a little bit about give people a background on your career and we'll go from there so you worked at prevail for 18 years tell us a little bit more about what prevail does yeah so prevail is a victim awareness and support program so uh they provide um supportive services for victims of crime and abuse any victim of any crime and abuse so yeah it's awesome really great awesome place yes they do a lot of good work for a lot of different people and I'm always super impressed by everybody who works there and then just I mean relatively recently you made a big change and now you're leading the O'Connor house so what kind of work are you doing over there so I'm the executive director at the O'Connor house and so I oversee the safe and well-being of the home and everything that happens in it and around it and it's a, a blessing work with great people and, you know, the ministry that we have in providing a home for those who are homeless and um, pregnant and the trauma that they have experienced Mm -hmm. and gone through, you know, it's, it's pretty deep when you live in that cycle of poverty too, you know, and just really supporting them through that and their pregnancy and, you know, being able to leave the house to, to sustain themselves and their family. So is, is a true gift to be able to serve in that capacity as well. Sounds like you guys are definitely doing some good work. That's so important. And I can't imagine, you know, especially if you're a single about to be mom and then you don't have anywhere to go. I 
can't imagine how difficult that would be. So I'm so glad you guys are doing that. In addition yes. to that, you also speak nationally. Well, we did, you know, before COVID, but I think right, was- <laughs> right. <laughs> and then all of that wasn't enough. You did just write a book. You just wrote a book entitled Found. And why don't you tell us a little bit more about your book and kind of how that came to be? Well, thank you. Yes, I've been writing it actually for 10 years. So it was kind of a full force and then stop and go and life gets in the way. And um, (laughs) it just this within the last two years, I found a co-author and we just and really it was by fate, you know, that and that's one of my um, takeaways from today. If Mm -hmm. somebody you never know who's going to fall into your life. And sometimes you don't take those chances. You go, Mm -hmm. oh yeah, we'll get together. So, you know, in the back of your mind, you're like, yeah, we'll get together. But you're telling this person, sure, let's get together. I took the chance with this individual and my gosh, yeah, my co-author, Emily Mm -hmm. Sutherland and I are just, we're binded together now. She just has a deep soul and connected with my story and- you know, she's a writer. And so my book was already written, but it just wasn't how, what I wanted it to be fully. So we connected and here now we have a piece and it's called found. And it's my journey of, you know, my being abducted and my assault. So Mm -hmm. it's just came out February 9th. So it's fairly new. Yeah. I've gotten lots of feedback from it, which is great. You know, the purpose of me writing it was to show people what's possible that are in the darkest days of their life that, that you know, it, it, it's possible to be happy again, mm-hmm. which is something I didn't realize or didn't even have hope for mm-hmm. after my assault. So that's. I mean, I, I read it and, you know, I, I was familiar with your story, obviously, before I read it and I learned things in it. And I think it's a wonderful resource for people to read and shed some light on some things that may not make sense to other people who haven't been through something like what you've been through or haven't ever been involved with someone who's been through something like that and the different things that you can learn from having read about your story. So just to give people a little bit of background, it was back in 1996 that you were assaulted, you're abducted from your front porch and assaulted over the course of several hours. And an off-duty police officer actually discovered you in the trunk of your own car and, I mean, saved your life. Right. Right. Yeah. So it was, it was when that trunk opened is when I say the nightmare began. And just to run through a little bit about the background of my story. I mean, you, you said it, that's, that's exactly what happened, but, you know, being abducted from the front of my house and my hands tied behind my back and blindfolded and gagged and, you know, drug across my backyard as I began, I begged for my life and told them Mm -hmm. to take my things. I won't tell anybody, you know, leave me. You can take my car. You can have everything because I knew, I knew it was going to happen. You know, I mean, I knew that I was going to die and inevitably probably the things that were going to happen before I died. And they proceeded to throw me in the trunk of my car and take me to a you know, garage, what I learned later, which was a garage. And, you know, they ripped my clothes off and took turns raping me in every way they could figure out. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in that moment and in writing this book, I learned a lot, mm-hmm. you know, because I went into the depths of 
things that I didn't remember and things that I remembered and the things that I don't remember that bother me now today, but it's just the way it is. It's, it was my, it was really the safety mechanisms that kicked in. And in that garage, if I would have felt what was happening, Mm -hmm. I don't know that I would be here talking to you today. So um, it was so brutal. And, you know, looking back, it's like, how did I survive that? And, and I know, I know how, and I know why I'm a very faithful person, you know, I mean, God was present certainly. Um, but it was an out-of-body experience looking in, um, you know, and, and trying just to remember all those moments and maybe it's okay that I don't, mm-hmm. um, but you know, I had a pretty severe head trauma because that's how I, they approached me was from behind. So that could have been some of it too, but, um, they ended up when they were done, then dragging me back out of the garage and, um, throwing me back into the trunk of my car. So, um, that's where I went unconscious. Mm -hmm. And when I, I came to, when I heard this voice and this voice was very stern and strong and different and really in my mind, I thought this is going to continue happening. I've got nothing to lose. I'm just going to kick on the trunk of my car and had no idea what would happen. And this voice came back that said, I am detective Arthur Billingsley from the Fort Wayne police department. I'm going to get you out. And it was again, this denial set in. And I'm like, this really didn't happen to me. Like all of a sudden I'm hearing this voice and it's like, I'm in this nightmare, but it really isn't real, but it feels real. And I just kept, I remember opening and closing my eyes and opening and closing my eyes, not believing that this was real. And, um, it was when detective Billingsley pulled down the back seat of my car, um, because he couldn't find a way to get me through the trunk. Um, Mm -hmm. and it seemed like it took hours before he got me, but he was actually securing the scene. He had handcuffed one of the guys that night. Mm -hmm. They were going to rob a restaurant. So one of them stayed back at at the car with me while they went in the back of a restaurant. And, Mm -hmm. you know, Detective Billingsley happened to drive down that back road and came upon my car and came upon those three guys, the two at the back of the restaurant. And when they took off running, that's how he found my car parked in a wooded lot. And he was actually on his way home, right? And wasn't planning on going anywhere. And then he just got sort of this gut instinct to drive around over there. And so it's just like you said, um, you're a woman of faith. I think he's a man of faith. And there was something that told him he needed to go back over there. And if he had not, he would never have found you. Right. He did. And, And on this particular night, he always goes out. And another takeaway from this is he always goes out after he gets off of work. But this particular night he was working on an investigation. He was exhausted and he went home and he actually felt that nudge. And he goes, I'm not going back out. I'm not, I just, I can't do it. Felt a nudge. I'm not going back out. And the third nudge, he goes, okay, I'm getting back in my car and I'm going back out. And that's how, you know, by, by the grace of God, he, that's how he found me. So you know, just another takeaway. We all feel those nudges and it's usually at the time where we are most exhausted and we go, you know what? I am too tired to do that. And the difference that it makes to listen to those. And I've heard that, you know, and being in this line of work now for 20 years, I've heard that so many times Mm -hmm. that I wish I would have listened or I wish I would have, you know, I'm sure you've had those instances. Yeah. 
So same. And I do listen to them now, just like I now take a chance. I'm going to meet with people. I'm going to get to know people. I, that's my favorite thing to do is connect with people. Everybody has a story. Mm-hmm. So the, there's a very telling moment in my book that talks about when our eyes met. And when I saw him, it was this, just this experience of hope, like, mm-hmm. okay, here, somebody is here to save my life. Like, um, you know, it's what I prayed for in the trunk of my car that God, I just need want to tell my mom, I love her one more time, you know, please save me out of this. So here we are. And then, you know, like I said, once the trunk opened, it was when the nightmare uh, started for me because I hope wasn't within my reach. I mean, here were all these lights and, you know, they're escorting me to the ambulance. I don't even know how I got to the ambulance. I just know that I wanted detective Billingsley to go with me. He was the only person that saw me in that, um, you know, in that trunk. And I didn't want to talk to anybody. I didn't want to tell anybody what just happened. I needed to sit with it. I wanted to go home and shower and so much was going on. And you know, taken to the hospital and to the Fort Wayne sexual assault treatment center and head was stapled and, you know, evidence was collected off of my body. And I had absolutely no idea what to do, what to say, where I was. You could have told me five times and it was just all a blur blur for me. I think I'm so glad that we're going down this path right now and starting to talk about this because I think that this message that you have to share with others, this part of it especially is so important because, you know, you had just gone through, you just experienced what I think could reasonably be called most women's worst nightmare. And you had no idea that had really only just begun because nobody thinks about the aftermath and what survivors of sexual assault, sexual violence, um, any kind of sex crime goes through and it does, it begins at that moment and it lasts in some ways forever. But there are so many things that go into it both immediately and longer down the road that nobody even thinks about. I don't understand. So for you, it's starting as soon as you're getting out and you're seeing all of these people around who want to help you, but they don't understand either what you've what it feels like to experience what you've just experienced. And I think that hinders how well we as professionals are able to help people who have experienced sexual assault. So right on. I want to hear yes. more about that from your perspective. Yes. Love to talk. to talk about. I would love to talk about that. And I'm going to read an excerpt from my book regarding that. But it but it is. It's um the other thing that I wanted to mention was and and now it just left me, but and I'll come back to it. But I'm going to read an excerpt mm-hmm. that I think will help where I was and what I learned on down the road much later on how the importance of education for first responders mm-hmm. uh, in the really the effects that it creates for us as victims or survivors. So here it is. Bear with me. All these professionals, some with training specifically designed to help them handle a sexual attack, were singularly focused on the one person who had no preparation for this turn of events. I was confused, injured, in shock, exhausted, and terrified in a way that only can be fully understood by someone who has endured such a nightmare. The world around me was focused on punishing the perpetrators and preventing future crimes, but none of that could help me through the grueling hours and days that followed. Despite having family and friends in abundance, help did not come readily or easily. 
Victims like me, I've learned, also have a mandate that comes in stark contrast to everything the first responders want and need. That mandate is simply to survive. At times, that was all I was able to do, but surviving is a far cry from healing and further still from thriving. So here I am, and this is what I learned on down the line when in working with first responders um, when I worked at Prevail and kind of initiating the sexual assault response team was everybody knew what they were doing because they went to school for it, mm-hmm. you know? you know, being a prosecutor, being law enforcement, being a sexual assault nurse examiner, you know, that's all comes with training. I had no training to be a victim. I had no idea what to expect, what to do, how to act, how to react. Law enforcement, the detectives that asked me questions still don't know my whole story. It wasn't something that I could, in that moment, I could do. And I realized on down the line on the things that I needed, because in that moment, I didn't know what I needed. So it's been a great relationship building and learning and, you know, building that sexual assault response team and Mm -hmm. law law enforcement. I want to know exactly what your mandate is. What are you doing? How can we help you and support you as advocates in the, you know, the fight or flight or what's going on with the victim and how can we support them and that best support what you need to do in your job is go get the bad guy, right? Or the bad person. So that was really a great learning experience several years after my attack that I wanted to help with. Because again, I still didn't tell them my whole story and I learned what I needed. I know that, and, and this sometimes can be awkward, but I, I needed to just sit with somebody by my side just to feel safe. And I really didn't necessarily need anybody to talk because sometimes words can be more damaging and you can become more shut off depending on what is being said. And you know, that's a difficult thing with victims, you know, in processing that. And, and that's what along the way, as I began healing, you know, going through those darkest days, it wasn't until I really came through that healing and, and it's, it's a continual process until I really learned what was good for me, what wasn't bad for me. And maybe this will help victims along the way that helped me create this, you know, the book found that I hope that it will help in those instances from, from people going through trauma to health conditions, to uh, first responders. Yeah. I'm so, I'm so glad that when I found out first that you wrote a book, I was like, Oh, great. Because I know that we all have so much to learn from you. I'm talking about professionals working within the field. I'm also talking about loved ones who's, you know, someone as close to them has gone through this and they don't know what to do because it's like you said before, there's no instruction manual on how to be a victim. And frankly, there's no instruction manual on how to be supportive of somebody who's been through this. And it's hard because even when you have people who have the best intentions, you wrote, I think there was one line in your book where you said it would be easy to write a chapter about all the people whose words and actions weren't helpful. And it's like, yeah. And I think sometimes as humans, we just like, we are uncomfortable with silence. And so we try to fill that space somehow. And they're saying these words that actually are not helpful and maybe even are harmful and they're trying to help, but they're not. And every victim is different. Every person is different. And the way you process trauma is different. I I know that you were talking earlier about how you listened to our episode with Eileen. And I thought something she said was like, you just have to be present. 
And that's going to be different for every single person. Maybe another person does want the words. Maybe they don't. And that's just, and it's hard. That's just something that you have to figure out as you go, I think, because there is not ever going to be any recipe that fits everyone, right? Support for survivors is sponsored by the law firm Cohen and Malad. Cohen and Malad attorneys have over two decades of experience helping sexual abuse survivors. We work through the civil court process to get justice and compensation that can help pay for resources needed to heal from your trauma and move forward. We are proud of the work we do in giving power to your voice. And now back to our show. That's just something that you have to figure out as you go, I think, because there is not ever going to be any recipe that fits everyone, right? Like you just have to, you have to learn it as you go. Yes. Yes. And I think exactly what you said, what Eileen said was being present with somebody, building that trust with them. If you really want to talk to them, it's building that trust and saying, you know what, we're just going to sit here and, and give you an opportunity to feel safe, you know, whatever that looks like. And honestly, silence is a gift, and sometimes can be the best best gift you can give someone. But in, and you're right too, those secondary victims in, in processing and what that looks like. And, and really the, the trauma in, I mean, when we're talking about secondary victims, it can also be those first responders mm-hmm. and responding because, you know, we all have families. And I always say, how would you, you know, treat this person like you would your loved one? whether it's your daughter, mother, brother, grandson, you know, grandfather, grandmother, friend, coworker, you know, how would you want to be treated? And I think if we can all think in terms of that, it would change how we do our work. I couldn't agree more. I think a lot of times, especially with first responders, a lot of them have not even to this day, here we are in, you know, 2021 and your assault happened in 1996. And I still come into contact often with first responders who have not been in, trained in trauma-informed care. So they don't understand the neurobiology of trauma, those brain and body responses. They don't understand how facts don't come out chronologically necessarily. And all of the different, both in the moment effects and the long-term effects. And then, you know, sometimes they ask questions that are at best insensitive and at worst re-traumatizing. And so right. we all learn from that. Absolutely. And I think that that is, we have to be able to listen to people like you who have been through it because you can teach us and we all, I don't care who you are or how long you've been doing it. I learn new stuff all the time. And, and I always think back, oh, I wish I had known this when, and I think I could have handled that better. And I think that's part of our responsibility for anybody who's going to work with survivors of sexual assault is constantly learning and understanding how to do better because we all have areas where we can improve. But that's, that's the beauty of working together. And it is a learning experience. I mean, it's going through those experiences and learning, you know, it's, it's a fine line because, you know, when I talk about things that are said, you know, like somebody would say to me, you're so strong. And that would make me really angry because then I would feel like, oh my gosh, now I got to keep this persona on. I've got to look strong and appear strong. And, and, you know, I wrote, I wrote about that in, in my book too, about, what that looked like for me, you know, and I'll I'll read just a little excerpt because I think it's really important. I tried to appear strong whenever I was around people, but in my heart, mind, and soul, a perfect storm was brewing. Every activity, behavior, attitude, or habit that was comfortable before the attack became a trigger. Even the personality traits that had defined me, trust, independence, fearlessness, and innocence, 
were altered. I felt unrecognizable in every way and didn't know where or how to find my way forward. So when I was going through the court process for almost three years and talking to my advocate, my the prosecutor, you know, just going through that whole process and I would show up at court and it would be postponed and I'd show up for, at court and it'd be postponed. That, you know, I did, I tried to appear strong and I tried to answer the questions, but inside, imagine that perfect storm was brewing and that's all I could think about. I yet answer any questions or be present for that. I was in fear of facing, you know, my attackers. I was in fear all the time. So I really couldn't be present and I couldn't take it all in and I couldn't understand what was going on. It wasn't until way after all of that took place that I started really healing and recognizing because I would have done things so much differently had I known. Sure. You know, where I, mean, I would be today. You just don't um, know. And I think it's, you know, there are more people talking about it today for sure than there were in 1996. And that's super helpful, but you're making a, I think you're painting a very clear picture of what it's like to go through, through all that. You have all these things going, but people have to understand this permeates your entire life and your very sense of safety and well being. And people who are working with survivors have to remember that because I get, I can be very passionate about my job and love it, but at the end of the day, it's my job. And so we all have to remember that this is someone's life. And it affects every part of their life. And we have to take that into consideration and understand that when we're interacting with survivors and trying to help them move forward. Right. Right. I mean, I lived through the darkest days of my life when I didn't want to live and I didn't have a purpose to live. And, and it was, it really was healing to get to know more of what the first responders and forming that sexual assault response team, that wow was really powerful for me in those senses is really learning and how can I help other survivors on the ride home from the hospital the next day after my assault, I looked out the window and two things I thought, I thought, I wonder what those people are going through as, as I saw cars drive by. And then I wondered how I was going to get through this. Like hope wasn't within my reach. I don't have any reason to live. How am I going to learn how to breathe and walk and work and be in this world? And I'm never going to be happy again. And that's what I told myself because I have to talk to somebody who's been in a similar situation to realize that there's happiness within my reach. And that's the other reason why I wrote the book, because it was a book that I found some kind of affirmation and hope. And because I, I didn't necessarily get that from first responders, um, from detective Billingsley, I did, but we really couldn't be in much contact with each other. So that was difficult. And, you know, as today, you know, Shaughnessy that we're the, he's like family to me. So, Yeah. I love that you guys still have that special relationship and and your son, in fact, he's named after him. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I think that's just really cool that you guys still have that relationship and that here we are this many years later, it probably feels like a lifetime ago in some ways, and you continue to be a part of each other's lives and your families have become intertwined. And I think that that is it's, just the coolest thing. It, it's, it's very, very cool. Yeah. My son looks up to him. He's so proud to be named after him. And you know, that was pretty emotional that my life is saved. And here I am, you know, what my life is like today, I could have never, ever imagined. And that's again, why I had to get the word out there. Anything and everything is possible and healing is possible and healing can be 
I don't even, I don't even know the words, but it, it can bring you so much happiness. And it's those days that are the darkest Mm -hmm. where healing that you don't recognize is when real healing is taking place, where you really are taking steps forward. And I think as, you know, a survivor, I didn't recognize that until really writing this book and doing this work and that I didn't realize it was those darkest days that I was taking steps forward when I was beating myself up for mm-hmm. taking steps backward. You but felt like it was backwards, right? Like that you're back. Yes. Life, but really it was those important moments that were really pushing you forward. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, those were the, the, the best days of healing. And I want to go back and for those, and I hope that we have first responders listening because I want to tell you that someone may not name their son after you and they may not come back and say, thank you, or you may not have contact with them again, but they are going to remember what you did for them for the rest of their lives. Whether it's you sat in silence with them, whether you smiled at them, whether you provided some sense of hope or affirmation that is life changing and life altering and honestly can save a life because the effects of sexual violence are horrifying, turning to drug abuse, to alcohol abuse, to suicidal thoughts, to suicide, to, you know, depression and and everything else. And those are, you know, the alcoholism and the uh, drug abuse only puts a bandaid on it and really makes the situation worse. And I remember those days and having a glass of wine. And I thought if I can only walk around feeling like this, you know, everything would be okay. But luckily for me, it didn't turn into that, but for so many, it does. And our words and our, um, our service to others, what we say, what we do have the effects, take the extra step, take the extra time us as providers or even family members. Mm -hmm. Um, that's what we can do for each other. Oh yeah. That's so important. Thank you for that. I, it does. Your words matter and what you do matters. Even on the days where you think it doesn't, it does. And some of us have those nice stories where you see somebody down the line and you have no idea if they'd even remember you and they stop you and they say, you know, what, what you did really did matter. And that keeps you going. I think let's talk a little bit about how you did get from those darkest days to where you are now. I know that you at one point said that you were ready for things just to go back to normal, but that's not, you can't go back. You have to, you have to move into that new normal And you have to figure out, you know, what that is for you and what it looks like. And, you know, you've got those old wounds resurfacing and something else that trauma does to you is that it, it permeates literally like every part of your life, including like emotional things from your past, from your present. And so how did you go from those, those darkest days, you know, to where you are now? And what advice would you have for people who have experienced this type of assault in terms of their path to healing? Right. Yeah. And, and getting to this place, it doesn't come without a price and it doesn't come without a lot of pain. And the things that I found most helpful for me were of course, therapy and journaling and really changing my thought process because I fought to be who I was before. That's what I wanted. I mean, I, I spent lots of time you know, telling my therapist, I I want, I'm going to be who I was before I'm gonna, you know, that's what I want to do. And I had to realize that I wasn't ever going to be that person. And it was pushing through that and relearning. I almost call it like therapy, putting one foot in front of another, learning how to breathe again and work through that. And for me, that was journaling. My life became this assault. 
every single second of the day. I am sure my friends got tired of it. I lost some relationships due to it and that's okay because today I have the healthiest relationships. And what has come out of this is I really love myself better. I know myself better because I took the time to journal and get to know myself and sit with myself and, you know, challenge my thought process on why I didn't, couldn't go to the grocery store and have somebody stand behind me. It takes a lot of work and a lot of time, but it is so worth it. And again, journaling, challenging those thoughts. I chose one person to walk alongside me. Well, not just one, but that was Chris. I was dating my now husband at the time. So spoiler alert, (laughs) but it, I, I chose that one friend and that I could call at three in the morning when I was out of my mind, like I was going to lose my mind and I'm never going to get through this. And, you know, she would sit and have dinner with me and I'd be in before dark and, you know, I could call her on the phone. So she was my, my go-to person, which was super helpful because I was too worried about, oh my gosh, I can't talk about this because everybody's tired of it. So I did that. And that was really, really helpful for me and, and continue on with therapy. And then I had to tell people that I was with what I needed. Mm-hmm. Not an easy thing to do. Oh. I want everybody to have ESP and know what I wanted and know what I needed. And I had to sit before Chris, who I was dating and tell him what I needed. And that was a hard adjustment to do, especially being a female. You know what? We want to be seen as we don't want to show our weakness. Mm-mm. You know, we don't want people to think that we're weak and that's wrong. You know, I, I learned that too, that We need to be our authentic selves because how are we any good for helping anybody else and affirming anybody else unless we are who we are and sharing our, you know, again, that's why I wrote the book, but that's, that was my healing process. Of course, my faith was first and foremost. Mm -hmm. I was on my knees a lot telling God, please get me through this. Please get me through, you know, this days on the darkest days. And here I am, I, I was given the tools to utilize, I just had to recognize them. And I think that's another really hard thing is recognizing those tools before you mm-hmm. and those people that can help you through it and, and being choosy, being in control and being choosy who those people are and what those tools are for you. And they're unique for everybody. Mm-hmm. But now I go back and read my journals and it is so healing. And, and I look back and I think, oh my gosh, I was really uncooperative and I was really angry and I was really in denial and I was really in fear. And those three things took over my life, but I wouldn't be here today unless I lived through those and mm-hmm. went through them yeah, and realized yeah. them. You said that, uh, that I've heard this many times in some variation or other. And it's so poignant is the only way around it is through it. So you really do have to fully experience the grief and, and go through that to get out to the other side. And just like you said, it's really, really hard. And I'm sure it's absolutely exhausting, but yes. so worth it on the other side. Yes. That, what did you say? I'm sorry. I'm sorry if the technical difficulties at all, but just so worth it on the other side. And oh, absolutely. Appreciating, but absolutely. And I, I talk about um, lifelines in my book. There's a chapter mm-hmm. called lifelines. And I, I, I guess I just will read this excerpt um, really quickly because we don't know. Everybody walks around with a story and we all tend to wear masks now and then. I'm, I am an expert at it in hiding and shoving my feelings in. 
but you don't ever know when you're going to become a lifeline for somebody. So let me just read this. Once you have received the gift of support from another human being during a difficult time, you understand more acutely the importance of being that lifeline for someone else when the tables are turned. I might never have known how to help someone find healing after a violent assault unless it happened to me first. Whether someone is facing a trauma similar to mine or dealing with a loss, disappointment, health challenge, transition, or other life-changing event, your presence during a person's darkest days are more important than you can possibly imagine. Every word you say takes on unique importance when someone feels fragile because they are hearing everything through the layers of pain. To be honest, I couldn't have anticipated ever becoming the lifeline for anyone else back then. I was not ready. I was in survival mode for months and really for the entire three years it took to walk through the legal proceedings but paying attention to how others helped and what I needed during the time unknowingly educated me on how to become a lifeline for others in the future. Super, super important, super impactful. Absolutely. And I I mean, you really put it well there. That's such a, such an impactful statement, I think, and everybody could learn from that. And that's definitely something that I was hoping with you coming on today is that we can all learn something from what happened to you. And I'm so impressed with you and always grateful that you do what you do on behalf of survivors to, to educate people, because that is a huge issue we have amongst everyone. And just our community at large, I think in terms of awareness, there's one passage that I actually want to read because it really spoke to me as a trial attorney. And I don't think that that's necessarily how you meant it, but it's just, I'm going to say it. And then we can talk about it real quick. So, you know, at the beginning of the book, especially you were talking about how your story was unfolding as a news story and what that looked like as a news story. Where this is your this is your life, but you know, on the news, this is a story to them. And so I, this is the part I wanted to read. As the top story unfolded, images flashed across the screens, revealing corner street signs and stately trees lying a sidewalk in partial disrepair along older, well-maintained homes and yards. Armed with this information, people would likely decide for themselves whether or not the victim made poor decisions. Had she chosen to live in a dangerous neighborhood? Was it a neighborhood they would live in or walk in? Would they be out at 10 o'clock on a Thursday night? Would they park on the street? Each no would make it easier for viewers to distance themselves from the violence and randomness of the attack. Each no took away their sense of personal harm, allowing them to lower their raised eyebrows, settle more comfortably into their sofas, and perhaps briefly lament that such violence occurred in their hometown. This is so spot on, 100% true. And I think about this with jurors because jurors walk into a courtroom with preconceived notions. And that's why it makes it so important what you're doing to educate people, because if you're just educating the general public, then they may walk into that courtroom next time and understand that all is not just as it seems. And our knee-jerk reaction as a society, for some reason, is this, is to question what she did, why she did it, what her actions were, when that shouldn't be it. She's not the one on trial here. Usually he is. And it's his decisions and his actions that led us to this, not hers. It doesn't matter. But that is what people look at. Exactly. And that was my point. So I'm so glad that you pointed that out. You are spot on. And that is my point of this is, you know, I don't, I don't care if somebody is walking down the street naked, it still doesn't give somebody a right to assault them. There is, you know, in our, in our work, Shaughnessy, we see so much victim blaming and people Mm -hmm. don't have any understanding. And, you know, I, when I came home that night, I saw two guys walking down my street and I went around the block. I became, my gut just told me, don't pull up. It doesn't look right. Doesn't feel right. I 
I'll just drive around the block, even though I was super tired. And it was a long block and I took my time and I came back down and they were gone. And so I pull my car up and grab my things and walk up to my door. I should be able to do that instead of beating myself up afterwards going, oh my gosh, why didn't I? And I'm sure people, well, I know people questioned, why didn't you scream? Well, is there a light on your front porch? Well, why were you out, you know, at 930 at night? Well, Mm -hmm. why can't I be out at 930 at night? You know, everything from the insurance person, what were you wearing? Why does that matter? And, And that's exactly what I said. Survivors experience that every day of their mm-hmm. life. And then it's telling them, oh my gosh, they're rethinking, well, is this my fault? No, it's not your fault. No. So it, it's that education piece too, that is very important for us as a community to know and to have. And if I can be an example of that, I'm here well, and I'm telling you, so stop that. Oh, I, yeah, you know, I mean, it makes my blood boil. It's but, the um, most underreported crime there is. Mm-hmm. Why? Because of what you're, that's what why we're talking about. That's what I always tell people. I'm like, you know, when you see a big story in the news of somebody being sexually assaulted or domestic violence as well, go in and read the comments that people write. And that will tell you why people don't come forward. It's because of that crap right there. And right. that's why we lose trials too, is because of that crap right there. And it's so insane the things that yes. people, I mean, it takes a lot of courage to be a, you know, a warrior an anonymous warrior to keyboard or nobody knows who you are, but people do it all the time. They write these just disgusting, offensive things and, and people know that. And so when they do find themselves in a situation like this, I think it is like, well, I don't want to go through that. And I can't blame them for that I, at all, which again, brings us back again to why it's so important that there are things like this. So I think this book is amazing. I think through your story today, we've learned a lot about what we all can do to do better. Is there anything else that you want to make sure that listeners hear before we are done for today? I, the one thing that the most emotional part of my story is the outcome. Mm -hmm. So even going through those darkest days here, I sit being able to serve for the last 20 years, I would have never found what my gift is. And I found what my gift is. I look at so many more blessings that have come from this trauma and the good things that have come from this trauma than this trauma itself. One thing is, is I have forgiven these three individuals because I don't want them to have any control over me anymore. Mm-hmm. So that's one, the gifts that I have gotten from this assault. And, and some, and some people hearing this might think, oh my gosh, how could there be any gifts? Because I wouldn't know Shaughnessy. I wouldn't know the people who have, that I've worked with, who are so giving of helping other people. Those are my lifelines. I would never know Detective Arthur Billingsley and his family and be able to call him my brother or my son and my daughter to call him their uncle. We celebrate life together. There are so many more blessings. I got to know myself. I have this beautiful marriage with my husband who I was dating at the time. And I have two beautiful children. If you would have ever asked me if that was possible, I would have said, hell no. Mm -hmm. And here I sit here today and it's possible. Utilize those people in your life. Let's all of us as first responders continue to do better. So we see this outcome with others because we have that in the palm of our hands to do for others. So I, life doesn't get any better than this. And I have a sign hanging on 
uh, in my bathroom when I wake up and on my way out the door. And it is so true. Yeah, there are hard days and hard times for us all. I mean, look at this past year that we faced, Mm -hmm. but it's if we can see the good from it and what we learn from it. And so just another little takeaway. Well, that's very impressive and beautiful. And I think for sure you wouldn't be able to sit here and say that if you hadn't done that hard work in terms of facing all of it and working through it. And I think that everybody can get a lot out of the book. Again, it's called Triumph Over Fear with Grace and Gratitude, Michelle Correo story found. So Michelle, where can people buy your book? Any platform. So my publisher is Morgan James. You can get it off of Barnes and Noble and Amazon and Books a Million. And all you have to do is Google it. You could also go to my website, which is michellecorreo.com. Of course, www.michellecorreo.com. You can see all the different places to buy it from there as well. Uh, Yeah, I would love your support and love your thoughts. If you do read it, I am very open to being contacted. So Mm -hmm. um, my email address is on my website too. And we will obviously put all of those in the show notes. And okay, so to end it up today, we're doing a thing now where we want to hear three things about you. So question number one, what does courage mean to you? Great question. Um, It it means a lot, but let me just read a quote and then I'm going to comment on that. Um, This is chapter 11 and it's lifelines. I'm not interested in whether you've stood with the great. I'm interested whether you've sat with the broken. And I think that takes courage. Yeah. And I hope and pray that God allows me to do this every day because that's where we're needed the most. So thank you, Shauna Steve, for um, seeing that, but, and everyone else listening, I think that's really important for us is to extend that hope to others and that affirmation. And that's what I've tried to do with writing this book. So that is courage. Courage is showing up. Courage is listening to that nudge, like Detective Billingsley said, and he came to me a day after two days after my assault. And he had to tell me because, you know, it was broadcasted all over the news and they, they portrayed him as a hero. And he said, I am not a hero. I didn't get to you soon enough. Wow. So, so that to me is courage. That's, that's really awesome. I like that. Okay. Next question. What is the best piece of advice you have ever received? Oh, that I have ever received. (laughs) Gosh. I feel like, because this is, this is advice that I would give. So I must have received it, but love God with all your heart, soul and mind. Mm-hmm. That's what I tell my kids. And then everything else works out. All of that. Awesome. Okay. Last question. This one's a little bit more lighthearted, but I think it tells a lot about people. Um, what is your favorite animal and why? My dog Prancer. Oh, Prancer. Oh, Prancer. Because of the unconditional love and you can sit in silence with your dog, well, with my dog Prancer, and there's just so much there. There's so much happiness and peace and joy and, you know, yeah, no worries. It's like everything. Okay. And to sit in silence with her. Yeah. They bring so much to our lives. It's truly unconditional love. And sometimes I don't think we deserve them. Right. Exactly. um, Michelle, thank you so much for coming on today. I think that you're such a beautiful person inside and out. And 
every time I see you or speak with you or listen to you speak, I'm so motivated to get back out there and keep fighting that good fight. So thank you for everything that you do for survivors. I a hundred percent believe that you make the world a better place by doing what you're doing. And I can never thank you enough for that. Oh, thank you, Shaughnessy. It is, it's a gift to get to walk alongside of you. Thank you for caring so much. And you are an amazing speaker and I wouldn't want to follow you. So there you go. <laughs> You're sweet. Uh, to our listeners, thank you for listening. Submit any questions or requests for guests at supportforsurvivors.com. And we will have links to Michelle's book and um, o- the O'Connor House in our show notes. So go on there and see that. And we will see you next time. 